0: professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Callaway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is David Merck.
1: David is a software engineer, mentor, organizer, volunteer, speaker, workshop creator, and unabashed career changer. Welcome, David.
2: Thank you so much, Clayton. It's uh, great to be here. So, David, uh, before we jump into the meat of things, would you give our audience a little more introduction to yourself? You know, perhaps tell them how you got started in the industry.
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And I, um, I'm i super shy to talk about this every time, but I think it's a really powerful message to kind of give. I'm a non-traditional developer. I'm proud of it. Don't get me wrong, but it's, it's just an awkward thing to say around people with 50 years of combined experience, probably. So before... I started my career as a programmer. Uh, I was waiting tables, and I'd been doing that for the previous 10 years. Um, I found myself at, at some, some nicer restaurants, and that was just the best my life was ever going to get. Until I went through a 12-week boot camp, spent two hours a week learning this stuff, and graduated, immediately got a job, and became a full developer. Obviously, there was a ton of hard work that went into it. It, it was clearly more than a two-hour-a-week commitment. Uh, the program I went through specifically is called Code Louisville. Uh, it's a great program. I've been mentoring there uh, for the past four years. Uh, a, a kind of indentured servitude, I guess. <laughs> Realistically, though, I, I just, it changed my life so significantly that I can't imagine a world in which I don't try to make that same impact on someone else's life. It's definitely one of those programs that you get out of it, what you put into it. Uh, so at the time, I watched all the videos twice. I programmed along with them. So as a server, you work nights. So on my mornings, uh, I spent all morning programming. You work weekends. So on my Mondays and Tuesdays, I spent you know sixteen hours writing code. And I built this really, really amazing Dungeons and Dragons themed fitness tracker. And, and so I was able to talk about my passion for that project using C It was I honestly I think it was the ability to tell an employer that I learned quickly and that I care about what I do, that was able to land me my first job. That was five years ago. Uh, What am I doing now? I'm a team lead slash architect at Slingshot. Um, I think I might share experience with somebody else in this room in that regard. It's a really strong company, a lot of talented developers there. Uh, And one of my mentors, uh, Sonny Galati, actually worked there whenever he mentored me. Uh, So it feels really exciting for my career in such a short amount of time, five years, uh, to kind of come full circle and, and to go from being taught by the best uh, to getting to work alongside the best, at least in our uh, local landscape. So that, that's that's where I'm at. That's what I do.
0: Yeah, I would say the non-traditional way to, to get into software development is quickly becoming the traditional path <laughs> to software development because a lot of the folks that we talked to came into this into this line of work through what we might consider non-traditional means. They didn't complete a four-year CS degree. They, they came into it through boot camps or through other means and are quickly making a name for themselves by, by producing fantastic software.
3: Yeah, and I love to hear that. <laughs> uh, I think as, you know, it, and you're right. And all of the best developers I know tell me that. They say, what is a traditional developer? the only way to learn how to write code is, is to write it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not, I mean, you have to write a lot of code in college. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but unless you, you know, take it home with you on the weekends, it, it's going to be really hard to get the experiences that you need, whether that's college or bootcamp. So I, I do appreciate you saying that John. And that's one of the best things about this community. Uh, everybody's super understanding and, and, I feel like everybody I've met in the community tries to lift each other up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would say it's, it's super supportive. Um, you know, especially folks that came into it through, through the non-traditional means that, um, you know, when I moved down to the Tampa Bay area, I I found a a code school down here and, and quickly tried to become part of the community there. And they, they welcomed me into the community and, we started a a meetup in the area there through the code school and and utilizing their space as well. What what types of applications, what types of projects are you working on these days? What motivates you and what are you finding exciting these days?
3: There's three questions there, right? Uh, What am I working on nowadays? Uh, Slingshot uh, and myself included, we build line of business applications uh, using typical enterprise patterns. Uh, You might be familiar with NBC. So we build... A lot of end tier applications. Uh, what, about, what motivates me uh, is impact. Everything I, I do, whether it's mentorship, volunteering, speaking, or building you know, a repository on GitHub with a copy, copyright or copyleft license for, for public use, it's all impact. Uh, I want to make development easier. Uh, specifically, the things that I find exciting nowadays are making deployments easier. Um, and I don't know at what point in my career I realized this, but that's a headache for a lot of <laughs> C-sharp developers. It's easy to just, maybe it's not easy, but hacking out if, else, while, you know, uh, arrays, generics, C-sharp code is what we've all been doing for a long time, but how do we actually get it to a client or to an environment? Uh, and there are just a ton of ways. And I think that with the... A uh, unique time that I started right five years ago. Everybody was starting to move from on-prem servers to the cloud. So all I know is the cloud. <laughs> I don't know anything else. Uh, and so it's really it's really an interesting time, I think, uh, for anybody getting started.
0: Yeah, and it seems like these days the the patterns with which we build the applications. That they're no longer the monolithic applications. They're, they're being broken down into microservice architecture. They're, they're started from a different path in utilizing cloud-first applications.
3: That's a really good point. I think a lot of people are building smaller monoliths. Uh, other people are building true microservices. Uh, some people are, are building something called a monorepo. I've heard uh, Jimmy Bogard talk about microsites. The architecture of C-sharp applications is changing. The architecture of applications in general. Like you mentioned, this concept of microservices, it's not this nebulous thing. It's the idea that you don't need one code base to do all of your work. You can split it out into smaller code bases. And one reason why I'm so passionate about that is because it's easier to learn, As a a non-traditional developer, I love the idea of being able to give a junior or intern developer a smaller code base to just jump in and have fun with, something that they could do exceptionally well with or break entirely, and we can throw it away in six months because it's not the whole monolith. You all had a great presentation several weeks ago about technical debt, whether it's planned or unintentional, and so... I find it incredibly difficult, and I'd love to get your all's input, to plan technical debt for a a monolith when you don't know when you'll have the bandwidth to refactor it.
0: (laughs) Recalling that discussion, there was uh, some debate on what we're defining as tech debt, what we're defining as quality, and how and when we repay that debt. Uh, I think it is, when we're talking about a, a monolithic application and talking about incurring technical debt, it's a little bit different, the payback strategy. At that point, right? Because, like you said, we we have the large application that is going to remain running for the foreseeable future. We don't have the smaller bits and pieces running as functions, running as little applications that are supporting the broader ecosystem.
2: Yeah, and a lot of times in those really massive monolithic applications, someone's already made the choice to uh, install that technical debt. And you're just the developer coming along to try to make the payment. And uh, yeah, I think it's one of the most difficult things to figure out. uh, And that is like, how do you, how do you bite the, how do you bite this off in chunks to start saying, how do we make this easier on myself? How do, you know, uh, you, you, you were kind of getting into a little bit of DevOps. there, talking about how, you know, the C-sharp's really not the hard part uh, really the question is how do we do deliver that value? How do we get value to a, to a person? And, um, you know, um, if you're, if you're touching a monolithic application that has a bunch of technical debt, then it's because it, it's not delivering the value that it needs to deliver right now. Either the requirements have changed or the business has changed, the world's changed around the application. And so it needs to do something different. And, and so you're saying, how do I, how do I figure that out? And, it's really difficult. To, it's really difficult to just like, you know, here's the solution. I think it's one of the one of the most challenges, challenging pieces.
1: I think that you you kind of hinted at at the solution though. Like in my mind, so like it's a monolith. So it kind of it's in the name. Changes or code that's already there feels more set in stone. It's harder to do anything with because you don't know what else that might affect. But if you can break things down into smaller pieces, whether it's uh, microservices or even what are the services is, is a thing now. The smaller you can make it, the easier it is to go, this is wrong and throw it away and do something else, which means that you're you're more open to change. It doesn't seem that big of a deal to throw away a 50 line program, but to throw away a million line program with, you know, 2000 files and some of those files have 40,000 lines, that is a much more difficult thing to take on.
3: Yeah, so I think all of these things kind of wrap together. I think what you're, John Ash and Clayton, what you're both saying is that these are some of the problems that a monolith has. The code base is too large. You don't know what's obsolete, uh, what has another contract, or or who the consumers are uh, from another API or, or another service or system and and john ash i think you actually alluded to one major problem with microservices and this is the biggest headache how do you deploy more services if deploying a c sharp application is the hard part how are you going to deploy a whole bunch of them and and so yeah that's that's the overhead that's the
2: and manage them when you say oh well, we got this 50 line you know azure function we don't need that function anymore so we're just going to move on from it we're going to replace it with this other one does that other one keep running
1: yeah, Ash, Ash uses Kubernetes for all this stuff, which makes me want to put all in my head. So I'm open to suggestions.
3: Yeah, I would suggest not to do that. <laughs> not to use Kubernetes? Check. <laughs> the reason I wanted to come on here, um, and the reason I think you all invited me, was this concept of uh, rebuilding a plane while flying. We have this monolithic-style application, and it is so old and gross <laughs> Uh, Someone else defined the patterns. Over time, we've all written uh, debt on top of them because they weren't meant to be extended in the capacities that we needed them to be. But we only had four hours to do it, so we did it anyways without regrets. Um, And so how do we start to decouple and deconstruct a monolithic-style application to use microservice patterns? How do we rebuild the plane when we can't land? We, We do not have a landing strip so we've got to keep it alive and and we've got to start doing new stuff
1: yeah it's like that one level on Top Gun but on steroids anybody else ever play the the Nintendo Top Gun game? I never got past refueling the plane forget it
0: (laughs) yeah so how do do we approach that how do we rebuild the plane while we're still flying without landing without refueling on the level of Top Gun
3: Uh, so just to kind of refresh I want to just share a a cool anecdote, I think. Clayton Hunt, John Calloway, you all came to my workshop in 2019 uh, about microservice patterns and you all attempted to build it in Blazor. And at the time, I had no idea what Blazor was and I could not help you. And I was in such awe and shock. Uh, today, I'm, I'm much more well-equipped with an actual understanding of what microservices are. I still don't think I could help. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, I, I put together that presentation based upon uh, Chris Richardson's book, Microservice Patterns. Uh, it's written from the paradigm of Java, but there's so much parallel between c and Java that uh, I was really able to apply a lot. So if there were one concept I would recommend to a developer getting started with rebuilding the plane while flying, it would be this idea of a strangler pattern. And so I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to try anyways. The idea is that there were three levels to actually strangling your monolith, according to Chris Richardson. The first one is decoupling your front end from your back end. Uh, So I've got a friend who's got a Web Forms application. It's a monolith. He needs to create new APIs and put in a new front end in a modern front end language, Alternatively, he needs his web forms to stay the same and to call these APIs that he's creating. Somehow you just have to get those two split apart. Uh, the second objective of the Strangler pattern is to do new feature development. So you get a request to extend an existing functionality. Talk it over with your team. Does this merit a new service? And so the goal is you stop you stop feeding the beast. Uh So this giant bowl of spaghetti that you have, and I I have so much respect for the years and years that went into making the the giant balls of spaghetti that I get to work with, Uh, but you you stop feeding it eventually so that you uh, stop increasing the technical debt, whether intentional or unintentional. And really, you you just put that technical debt into another service. (laughs) And then the third step, and I think the most difficult is actually pulling something out. You want to keep an existing piece of functionality, but you want it to have a new API signature or a new uh, IP address. Somehow you've got an edge gateway routing system that is sending existing API contracts to your new service rather than your old API. And so essentially that's, that's the strangler pattern. Separate your front end from your back end New feature development in new services, and bite the bullet, pull something out. How you do it is <laughs> <It's, laughs> I, I think it's it that's the tricky part
1: yeah do you have any uh any tools that you've that you found helpful in in your attempts to uh to break up a monolith
3: yeah there so there are a plethora of patterns. anybody who is undertaking this, I highly recommend you to read chapter thirteen of chris richardson's book uh Chapter thirteen is about Patterns for refactoring a monolith. Uh, So it's going to feature patterns like Saga uh, and CQRS, command query repository segregation. Uh, And so those are two ways of ensuring that all of the transactions that were occurring in your monolith are still occurring now that they may be occurring in different services. Um, I found the adapter pattern incredibly useful so if I had a piece of logic that was going to call an internal service uh, I could wrap it in an adapter and have that uh, adapter activate based upon a feature flag potentially so as a new service was ready I could immediately begin cutting over traffic Uh, even if all the APIs uh, were still in the monolith the monolith could reach out to a microservice At QSR, uh, I was actually really lucky to get to work on one of the most high-traffic APIs they had. QSR Automations uh, builds restaurant software. Uh, I was working there shortly before the pandemic, uh, and about halfway through, I I needed to get out of there. But um, one of their clients is Google. Uh, So if you've ever made a restaurant reservation online, uh, you're directly interfacing with some of the APIs I worked on. Cool. Yeah. So you can imagine why it's important that the microservice returns the same exact result as the monolith's API. And one of the hardest things that we ran into is how do we ensure complete parity? There's going to be different states. They're not sharing cache. We're building a, an event-driven microservice rather than having a service layer that would just construct all of the data. And so we used a library called scientist.net. I think this is something that, uh, if, you, if you need to do something similar and you absolutely need to know that the results are the same, uh, this, is the soft, this is the library you want to use. It was originally written for Python, I believe, uh, which is moderately irrelevant. Uh, but scientist.net allows you to write hypotheses. The library will call two separate methods. So it might call the internal API and the microservice and you'll be able to uh, store the results of both and compare them later on. We were uh, checking to make sure at the end of a month that the results had a degree of accuracy. That We just wanted to know, are they 5% there, 95%? Um, but through the logs that we were getting uh, with ScientistsNet, we were able to go back and understand that they weren't exactly the same and it was because the monolith was returning bad data which is another reason why you know we were we were excited to switch over
2: so once you start employing these patterns uh and we can start breaking that monolith up into microservices how how do you get these microservices to talk to each other and communicate is is there some methodologies or glue that brings these things together
3: yeah and that's one of my favorite things to talk about uh The buzzword, I think this is what Chris Richardson calls it, integration glue. And so essentially there are three ways applications talk to each other. API, which I think we're all familiar with. Some uh, method of publish, uh, PubSub. I I prefer to use uh, SNS and SQS, which are AWS products. Um, And essentially they create a queue of uh, messages that you can fan out to different microservices. Um, or you would use you know, the service bus or uh, our RPC, something like that. So essentially, yeah, you've got your first microservice uh, that you've pulled out of your legacy system, and you need a way for it to communicate. Some questions you might ask yourself are, do you need a response right now? If you need a response immediately... You, you might want to go with an API, right? Mm, so that you can mm-hmm. get a response back. If you want it to be more event-driven, so your microservice is just going to store data. Maybe it's just listening for every time a, a domain entity changes so that it can have the most up-to-date value. You, you might want to go with something like uh, SNS and SQS. So sub. I think uh, a lot of the companies that are going to be looking... I've heard a lot of companies are, are really interested in this concept of rebuilding the plane while flying, and it's it's almost become a, a buzz topic. So I don't think it's, a, it's for everybody. I'm sure that everyone's going to build microservices for the next five years, and then we'll switch to nanoservices like Clayton mentioned.
1: And then back to monoliths.
3: And then back to <laughs> monoliths, yeah. And that's why I like to talk about some of the problems with microservices. John Ash, I, I know you've worked with Kubernetes a little bit, so... Uh, you're aware that one of the obstacles of microservices d- is deploying them. You know, how do you orchestrate and observe?
2: You get DevOps to do that. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Can you think of any... <laughs> you just ping DevOps on Slack and they do it.
2: <laughs> That's my favorite method.
3: But so there, I think there are lots of programmatic limitations of microservices too. One of the obstacles that I've heard a ton is testability. In a monolith... It's so easy. You just write your unit test. You can test a single unit. You can test a single chain of units. You can go from the API to the repository. In a microservice, it's, I think, a little bit more difficult because you want to test every layer. And that's, I think that's a, a huge pain point for a lot of people. One of the ways I've seen it done well is through API uh, integration tests, so ensuring that your contracts never change At QSR, we we went to the extent that we were screenshotting every image of a website when it was deployed as part of the CI CD pipeline so that we could actually compare it with what existed before the deployment versus after. Ultimately, though, I think the goal of a a microservice is that it can be independently testable. You know that its unit of work is, is working.
0: Yeah, but at some point you need to to know that your your entire system is working in concert and, and working together, and you are getting from point A to point Z all the way through the alphabet in the various states that a particular entity, a particular message, a, a particular transaction needs to to hit, and therein lies the challenge that although we're we're breaking our monolith into. Uh, smaller units into smaller services. Uh, we do know that there is an end-end transaction flow for the types of applications that we typically work on. You started to allude to as well that you know it, it might be fun to dismantle the plane or rebuild the plane in flight, but there's probably easier ways to accomplish that. It 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 might be safer to land and then make the adjustments make the changes but we don't always have that luxury
3: yeah so i right the the alternative to rebuilding a plane while flying is to land take a year off and then launch the launch a new plane and that is i've never been able to make any headway with that conversation unfortunately um it's always like what if you could land for a week what could you give me at the end of a week
1: uh racing stripes (laughs)
3: Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, and, And so we know that that's realistic. But one of the big benefits of a microservice architecture is when combined with an agile methodology, you can have these smaller teams working on independent pieces. So rather than landing the plane, you can have, you know, John's team go off on their own and start to build a feature. And in two weeks, maybe all they have is the deployment pipeline built. But at the end of those two weeks, you you know you've got that, and you can do a better job of estimating when is this feature actually going to roll out, uh, specifically because you're not competing with the other features in an existing monolith. You're not going to have you know twenty other developers merging on top of you. It's John's team. You know you're going to have three developers. Uh, working on hopefully three unique pieces of logic.
0: Finding out what those appropriately sized chunks to to break out and and address, therein lies the challenge. But I think it is important to go through that exercise to find out where we can carve off pieces to deliver functionality and make that into manageable, independent, and valuable efforts.
3: Yeah. Uh, So I think another way of saying well what you're saying, John, is uh to quote Chris Richardson, uh rapid, rabid, and reliable. To
0: actually break it off uh and and do that saves time. So so what else? Where where do we go from here? Where do we pick up and, and decide uh what we can do while we're still in flight and, and where we can carve off what we can deliver from the ground?
3: I, I think that's a very uh specific question to every every company every team, but a good guideline is to think about your entities and their relationships. If you're used to using a, a relational database that has all this object-oriented uh, programming and classes, might be beneficial to start looking at which ones have the fewest relationships. So if you have a table with one relationship, could that be pulled out into its own Microservice with its own non relational database. Um, I mean, or you could also, you know, your microservices can have relational databases. Uh, the general rule that I've heard it should, is you know, microservices should not share databases. So it doesn't SQL, NoSQL, doesn't matter. Uh, NoSQL, I think, is more popular because it's so much faster. Um, MongoDB specifically, I think, has single digit millisecond response times uh, for a key value pair. So it's all about looking at your data. I think that's, that's really how we had to start at QSR. Uh, one of the easier microservices we built, we knew we had a table called heartbeats. Um, and so each restaurant had a server in it and that server would call into our monolith. If it didn't call on the monolith, that means the restaurant didn't have internet and couldn't accept reservations. So we, we realized that the only thing that I actually needed to know about heartbeats was uh, calculating a quote for a wait list. Uh, so that was another one of the, the microservices I got to work on. And it was pretty simple. We used an interior pattern. Uh, so we had an API that called a service layer that called a, a database. Uh, so we had a, a microservice with a monolith pattern. Uh, and it was kind of cyclical in nature, a sort of roborous.
2: so we've uh, mentioned a few things, but uh, are, are there any resources that you can point our listeners to uh, who maybe are looking to you know work on refactoring applications, uh, you know trying to get into microservices, um, trying to understand how do we integrate these things we've We've mentioned a few topics there uh, so yeah. <laughs>
3: Chris Richardson has a great book on it. He's definitely the authority. Uh, That's who I would turn to. It's good to just start having the discussions before uh, you write any code. Understanding what are your domain boundaries? What, What are your teams? So some of the most complex problems you'll face going this direction might not even be programmatic in nature. It might be process. I, we all want to be like Netflix and do 1,000 deployments a day. But you you need a process and a, a team that can actually do that.
1: Uh, what has helped you in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers?
3: Oh, that's a, a great question. I think the development community is just incredible. Um, I mentioned to Chad Green at Code Palooza in 2016, after I'd been a developer for like four days that I wanted to give a presentation on, uh, fitness specifically being, you know, healthy and active in a docile industry. Um, and he immediately introduced me to like 14 other speakers. So (laughs) I, I would say one of the things that has been so beneficial to me in this industry is the community.
2: Uh, speaking of community, uh, where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on?
3: Yeah, so right now, the two uh, social networks that I maintain uh, decently are LinkedIn. Uh, so it'd be linkedin.com slash Code, spelled exactly like it sounds, and GitHub, which would be github.com slash dvdmrk, which is my name without any
0: vowels. All right. Thank you, David. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today.
3: Thank you so much, John uh, John, and Clayton. It's been my absolute pleasure uh, to be able to sit here with you all.
0: That was David Merck. David is
1: a software engineer, mentor, organizer, volunteer, speaker, workshop creator, and unabashed career changer specializing in C-sharp.net, tier, and microservice architecture. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes.
0: Find show notes, blog posts, and more at SixFigureDev.com.
2: And catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Six Figure Dev.
0: This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway.
2: I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash.